So on Christmas Day, uh, two, two days ago, on Friday, I took some time to start my Christmas Day off driving out to Philadelphia to visit my niece who had recently moved here about a month ago uh, and to spend some time with her because this was going to be her first Christmas, um, really moving into adulthood, you know, first time having a job. And this is because of what's going on in the world, not traveling, and this would be her first Christmas without family. And so I'm the closest family she has, so I decided to, to leave early and drive out to visit her and spend some time with her. And when I was out there, of course, uh, the visit, we got to talking and hanging out and laughing, and, and the time kept passing and passing and passing. And so my kids were at home waiting for me to get home to open gifts because my wife was not going to allow my children to open gifts without me being present. Well, as the time kept passing and I did not arrive home when expected, but my coming was delayed, uh, I started getting phone calls. So I noticed a couple missed calls, and I was like, oh, well, let me see what's going on in the house call. So I got a phone call, and, you know, hey, Daddy, um, when are you coming home? Because we can't open the gifts until you get home. Then about 30 minutes later, hey, Daddy, how far are you away from the house? Because we can't open gifts until you get home. And so they were super excited. So when the garage door opened, and we live in a, a townhouse that's three stories tall, and so on our bottom floor is the garage, and I opened it up, and I was pulling in, and, and I could, it, they, they were running so loud back and forth, I could hear as I pulled into the garage the feet moving across the floor with such joy as the anticipation that I had finally made it home because for me to get home meant now Christmas could begin. So they were super excited about that. Well, something similar was happening uh, in the time of Jesus as, as he was preparing to leave earth. The disciples didn't really know that, uh, but they were curious about when the end of the age would come, when he would come as the Messiah and usher in the, the messianic age. Uh, and they're not thinking in the way that we're thinking about things. Uh, they were thinking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And they knew that with the coming of the Messiah meant that all those promises that the prophets had talked about would, be, would happen and be restored when the Messiah came finally to restore the kingdom. And so as they have faith in Jesus, they're trying to figure out when is this going to happen. And so they asked Jesus about this because for them, that was going to be their Christmas. When the Messiah came back, Israel was going to be restored. The kingdom was going to be put right. They were going to be made the head of the nations, and it would be like what Christmas was for my kids. That's when all the presents get open. And so they needed the Messiah to come. So they asked Jesus in this one particular text in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, it's just there in the text, Matthew 24, uh, verse 3. And he sat, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him saying privately, tell us. When will these things be? Here he was asked, they're asking about the destruction of the temple. We've talked about that before. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I'm only going to focus on one of those questions. Uh, we don't have time to do all three today, but I'm going to talk about one. Uh, and, and that's going to be the middle question. Uh, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus has some answers. He's going to answer all three questions but not with the answers they're expecting. But I want to focus on that second question for today. And this is what Jesus said. Notice there on the text, uh, on the slide, it says, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, guys, listen, none of us really know. 
Not even the heavenly hosts know when I'm going to be coming back. The Father has fixed that by his own knowledge, and so I can't share that information with you because I don't have that information to share with you. So I don't know, and nobody else knows. That's just a, a given, right? And in light of that given that no one knows, here's what I do want you to focus on about my coming, and this is the key verse that we're going to spend our time on. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the key to the rest of the text. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, thus be ready. And that's the title of our message today, Are You Ready for Jesus? So Jesus tells four parables and then gives an analogy to end off things. Uh, and in the four parables, he tells these stories about readiness. In the first story, he tells the time is unexpected. The person shows up at an unexpected time. In the second one, he shows up earlier. In the third parable, he shows up late. In the fourth one, he shows up late as well. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on that third and fourth parable and then touch on the analogy. We won't do the first two. So the first story that Jesus tells is about what I'm calling the parable of the 10 teenage girls. The 10 teenage girls. And I'll explain it to you why. But first, let me read to you the text, and then we'll see why I'm saying that or calling it that. The parable of 10 teenage girls. So the text says this. This is Jesus talking. He's telling the story. Uh, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for the lamps, for our lamps are going out. And the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So let me start off with a question first to kind of use some modern things to, before I give you the observations from the text to kind of put our mind around why this is offensive of what they're doing some of the teenage girls. So I'm going to ask a simple question. We're going to just do it by a show of hands. I'm going to ask you, it's just a multiple choice question. So this is a little quiz. Raise your hand if you think the person is properly dressed for as more customary. I understand there's some uncustomary weddings and people dress differently, but customary weddings, we think about wedding. Which one do you think is the more appropriately, addressed, uh, appropriately dressed person? If you think it's one, raise your hand. Who thinks it's one? Oh, I think we're going to end up with unanimous. Okay, how about two? Who thinks it's two? Okay, so everybody agrees, and so we're all with the same picture in mind of what's appropriate for dressing, right? So if somebody showed up to your wedding who was in your wedding party on the day of your wedding, and they walked up on stage dressed like number one, would you be offended? Yeah, probably right, you'd be offended. So when I got married some years ago, 
Um, the, air, the airline lost the luggage of one of my groomsmen. And it came in that morning, but we were having an 8 a.m. wedding. So he was calling the airport all night long asking if he could get his luggage because his suit and everything that we had dressed for our attire was inside of his luggage. Well, they had the luggage. It had arrived, but the person working at the gate, when he explained the situation, said, well, hey, I'm sorry. It's right here, but I'm not going to open it up to 10 because that's what time I start work. So he was unable. And so I said, well, man, we can still try to work you into the wedding. And what he said was, he said, man, because I don't have a proper tire, I don't feel right going into your wedding and ruin it by not being in the right clothing. And that's kind of what's going on in the text. So now let's go to the observations of the text. So in their culture of the day, from what we know, or at least from what I've gained from reading different sources, uh, so at that time in that culture specifically, so one of the ways weddings were celebrated because these were huge deals in their time and culture was that the groom would leave his parents' house because he's probably an older teenager, probably almost in his early 20s, uh, generally speaking because of some views that the rabbis had at the time, and he thought it was better to get married younger. Uh, and so he would probably still be living with his parents, and he would leave his parents' home where he would ultimately come back to. He would travel to where his bride was living because she was living with her parents still at that time because that was a good place for girls to live. And, and they were generally about teenagers in, in, in age, somewhere between 12 to 16 in that age for marriage for girls. And so she's probably a teenager. The bride is not in the parable. But normally what happened is the groom would leave. He would come to the house to get the bride. This would usually happen in the evenings, right? And what would be happening is that the families would be negotiating the price of the gifts because the more expensive the gifts meant the more that the bride was worth, which meant the groom made a good choice. I know we don't believe in all that stuff, so uh, that'd, be, that'd be interesting on your gifts, be negotiating, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to accept that gift. It's too cheap. Take that back to Target. <laughs> I don't want that Target to give you a, take me down here somewhere else, <laughs> you know? But, but that's the kind of thing that was going on. So, so, and then when they showed up, the part of the, the wedding party, since it was at night and you don't, we didn't have these modern lights and street lights, they would use torches to escort the bridal party back from the bride's house to the groom's house where they would start this, this several-day feast and wedding feast, and there would be blessings and lots of food. And in a society where you didn't really, like, eat large amounts of food regularly, this was a big deal. So it was a huge celebration. So weddings were big, you know, and Jesus even did a miracle there. So that's kind of the idea, right? And so if you didn't have a torch and you were part of the party, you couldn't be part of the party because that was part of your responsibility. It would be like you coming dressed inappropriately today to a wedding and you being part of the party. So what happens in our story? Well, every detail about these girls, and because he calls them virgins, is not talking about other things. What it's most likely referring to is girls who are, are of a marriageable age. And in that culture, that would have been teenage girls. So that's why I call it the parable of the 10 teenage girls. So let's imagine these, these 10 teenage girls. They're there. They're going to be part of the wedding party. Now, they either are bridesmaids in the sense that we could most equivalent say, or they're simply just neighbors who are friends of the bride. That's who this is. It's not the bride in view. It's those who are the friends who are supposed to escort the bride there. So the bride and the groom are waiting. The groom is coming, and they're waiting on the groom to show up so the party can proceed. Now, while they're waiting, whatever's happening in Jesus' story, because he, he wants to turn it on a point, it's taking longer than expected. Notice what happens to all of them. They all get sleepy, 
and fall asleep. And at midnight, like most of us, we're in the bed sleeping, the call comes that the bridegroom is showing up. So that means now get up, light your torches, and go. The only difference between the girls is that some are prepared for a longer delay and others are not. And so when the time comes, only the ones who are prepared can actually join the wedding party and go to escort the the bride and the groom to the groom's house and be part of the feast. Now, in their culture, things would have probably happened different in real life, but Jesus is telling a story with a point. And his point is, so when the, when the brides who are the, the bridesmaids or friends are not prepared and they show up, it's just like somebody showing up at your wedding who dressed inappropriately and they knew what the proper attire was, right? So you would be offended and your family would be offended. That's kind of the thing playing in the background. They knew they should have been prepared. They knew he could have been delayed but they didn't prepare. And so this is an offense to the bride and the groom. And thus what the groom does, it does something cultural. He then distances himself from a relationship by saying to them, I don't know you. Not the idea is that he doesn't know them in the sense that he would know them. He knows their identity. But the fact is because they offended the bride and the groom, he distances himself socially from them and puts them out. But Jesus has a much greater point in, and this is what Jesus' point is. Because remember now, the question is, are you ready for Jesus? And here's the first point of the first parable. Only those who wisely prepare for Jesus' arrival will be ready and be able to enter the kingdom. If you don't prepare, then you won't be ready. And if you're not ready, you won't enter the wedding feast and the marriage supper. Here he has eternal consequences in mind. So we must prepare. That's the first story that Jesus tells us. So that's the first concept that he deals with. Then he switches over and he starts to fill out the picture a little bit more. And this one is about money. He uses a story about money. The first one was about girls. Now he's going to switch the gender and talk about men. He's going to use a money story that relates to doing business. But before I do that, I'm going to uh, have Pastor Mike come up, going to have Beth come up, and I think Grace is going to come up, and they're going to take their places because they're going to help me with this. And I'm going to need three volunteers, uh, children, so I'm going to say second grade or older, second grade or older, and Pastor Mike can pick out our kids for us. I'll let him pick our kids out. So if you don't mind raising your hand to volunteer, Pastor Mike will pick you out. So second grade or older, I just need you for a few minutes. You can come on up. Or come on up. You can come on up right there in the pink shirt. Yep. Two more. Come on. Don't you just come right up here, right here, right here in the front, right here. I'm going to yeah, explain. Yeah, come right over here. Just right here. I just need two more. Don't make me pick you. <laughs> you don't want to be that kid in class. Oh, uh, come on. <laughs> Keep two more. I just need two more kids. Come Who's on. Brave? Let's see. Who would like you to You guys try? are holding out on me. This All is right, actually come on up, come a good on thing. thing. We got this one more. We just got bad. one more. All right, very good. Give him a hand as he comes right, for that very courage. Good. We got a brave one. We need one more volunteer. Just one more volunteer. Come on. One more. You coming up, Ava? Come on up, sweetie. Come on up. That's great. Yeah, you can be a volunteer. That's fine. Very good. Come on up. All right, you guys turn around. Pastor Ben has I'll, got some instructions for you. I have a you. few instructions for you that I'm going to leave you in Pastor Mike's hand. This has to do with I'm going to entrust some money to you. And then I have to go out of the room for a little bit, and I'll be back. But I'm going to trust the money to you. So I'm going to give it to you here in just a minute, and then Pastor Mike will explain what you need to do, okay? I'm going to put my mask on, so here we go. Let me put my mask on first. 
Okay, so we'll start with the oldest. Look like the oldest here. Give you five. Five dollars. Two dollars. And one dollar for you to hold on to. Pastor Mike's going to tell you, I'll be back in just a minute. All right, so we got to get names. What is your name? Elamarmi. Elamari? Elamarmi. Elamarni. All right, very good. Ethan. Ethan? And who do we got here? What's your name? Ava. Ava. Okay, very good. So you three, you've got some choices to make. Pastor Ben just gave you money, okay? And it's actually his money, but he has entrusted it to you. He's, he's trusting you to, to wisely manage that money, okay? And he's going to come back at some point, and he's going to ask you what you did with his money. And you've got some choices to make. You can either... You can actually go and do some work and earn some extra money, okay? Or you can spend the money he gave you over here on the candy table, all right? Or you can earn some money and spend some of it on the candy table. You can blow it all on the candy table. You get to do whatever you want with that money. So we're going to give you about three or four minutes to figure out. You can go either to Miss Beth or Miss Grace. Go ahead, do what you want to do. Whatever you want to do, you can buy candy, you can earn money, you can do whatever. Ava, do you want to earn money or you want to buy candy? All right, let's go get some candy then. All right, Miss Grace will help you figure that out. Miss Beth will tell you what you got to do to earn your money. Okay, so the Ethan, right? Uh, you have $5. So for you to double your money, you're going to have to do a one-minute plank, and 20 push-ups. So you still interested? One-minute plank. You know what a plank is? Okay. And 20 push-ups. So you can do this work and make double your money, or you still can go to the spending Ava, table. Ava, you can sit right okay. here for right now, okay? We're going to wait for Pastor Ben to come back. And for LRME, LMR, LMRME, you have $2, right? So you have to do a 30-second plank and 10 push-ups. Here, plank I'll show sit. you. Here's a plank. Mr. Mike. And you have you to do, do that? The, hold it for 30 seconds. Okay, so, but that's your choice. If you want to double your money, that's, that's the work you have to do whether you know how to do it or not, or you can go and spend your money. Or you can just, or you keep, can just keep, keep what you have. Okay, so you're just going to keep it? Or are you going to try to do the work? So would you like to try right now? Okay, so let's get in plank position. Plank position. There you go, very good. Right. Best starting Ready, the timer. Good go, job. Go ahead. Excellent. Keep it going. Doing good. This is very impressive. You're going to be able to create a YouTube video and make a lot of money with exercise. Good job. Yeah, okay, so far I'm making you laugh now. Five more seconds. One, two, three, four, five. Now you have to do ten push-ups. Can you do push-ups? Can you do push-ups? Okay, now you got to do ten. We got you in these nice clothes having you do push-ups. Good. One, two, two three. three. Excellent. 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Very good. That was a lot of work, wasn't it? She doubled her money. So and if you want to go spend it, you can or you can keep it. That's what do you want to you. do with that? What do you want to do? You want to buy some candy? You want to hold on to it for when Pastor Ben comes back? It's up to you. All right, go on over there and spend $1. Okay, Ethan's decided to keep his money. All right, Ethan, come on, take a seat here. Very good. This has worked out a lot better than it did last night. We've refined it since last night. Last night was a uh, children's ministry disaster, actually. So I think we've recovered. All right, you guys, very good. I, I think Pastor Ben might be coming back here. He's probably going to have you, you. You probably ought to come and stand in front of him a little bit here. So come on up here, you guys. Let's see what happened here, Pastor Ben. All right, so let's see what happened. We'll start with the oldest first. So I gave you, I think I gave you $5. So what do you have for me? You saved it, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll talk about that in just a second. Sweetheart, what do you have for me? No money, but you got candy. Okay. All right. <laughs> and you've got how much do you have here for me? Three dollars. Okay. So we got a little bit of investment over return. Let's give them all a hand. And I'll explain this in just a second. Very good. Well, since you guys already bought candy, I'm gonna let you keep candy. And since you're participating, you can go choose the candy. Go to the candy. And thanks for participating. All this right, wouldn't have you. happened in reality, but we're being very gracious right yeah, now. Yeah, we're being very gracious right now. I'll explain to you what, what's going to happen here in just a second with the servants and how that worked out. All right. Thank you, guys. You can go have a seat. Thank you so much. Great job, you guys. So uh, we're going to read the story and then see what Jesus does in the text. It's going to be a little bit different. So... Uh, because we were dealing with kids, I decided not to, to, to treat them like adults. Uh, if this had been adults, this would have been a different situation. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go to the text and look at the text and see uh, what the text actually says. So Jesus tells this story. For it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents and to another, uh, to another two and to another one. To each according to his own ability. Then he went away. He, he who had received the five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug, it in, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enjoy, enter into the joy of your master. He who also had a received the one talent came forth saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. 
Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have instead have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, of course, between our illustration that we did here and, uh, and the story, there are a few differences, right? So that the relationship between me and the kids is different than the master and the servants. There's also cultural expectations that were already unstated that they would have known that our kids didn't know and I did not state. Last night I did tell them what I wanted them to do, so we tried, thought we'd do it differently today. And all of them, once I gave them the instructions, they just did that one thing, right? Versus today we gave them more freedom and to see how that would work out. And that was kind of the idea. And so th there's a different relationship here. Now we're talking about talents. Now all of, for all of us, because we use talents uh, in a different way in our culture, it's not the cult of the type of talent that he's thinking of back then. He, he tells you, you pick it up at the end of the story of what talents are. Talents are a weight of measure of something valuable, like gold or silver. And so this idea is that he's giving them bags of gold or silver, coins. And that's what's really happening in here. And this is of great value. Some people have tried to estimate the value. One commentary, he said, gave me some numbers, and I said, okay, I'll use those numbers to kind of give you mo modern equivalents to understand the kind of money that's being entrusted to the servants. So the five-talent person, if we were to put it in terms of today, he has been given something like $1.5 million that's been entrusted. Two talents, $600,000, and the one-talent guy that you don't think has much, $300,000. So these are, these are no amounts to sneeze at. So large sums have been entrusted to them. So we noticed in, in the story, the way it plays out is two of the servants, right, they all seem to know what to do, and that's where it turns on. They know what to do, and it's the question is, what will they do? Two of the servants go to work immediately and go and put the money to use and start investing it in business adventures or whatever they're doing. And as time passes and the master's time is delayed, in the time that he's gone, they're able to double the money. We don't know exactly when they doubled it or how it doubled it or, or what happened, but we do know that the point was that they doubled the money so that when the master arrives, they have twice as much. And the master says to them, you have done exactly what I expected of you. You took the resources I gave you. You looked out for my interests because I gave you this money and now you have more to present to me. And because of that, I'm gonna give you responsibility and you get to, he draws that image from the first parable, enter into this wedding feast. So the idea is lots of food, joy, big celebration, you get to come in. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's always compared to this feast idea of lots of people, family, fun, food, all this great stuff, like a big party. You get to enter into the joy. That's kind of the idea. Two of them go in. The last servant, he's been given this money, but what he does is legally okay in their time. It was okay to take money and hide it in the ground. But in this one, Jesus turns the parable on that idea because it's about doing the master's will. And that's where the problem is. Not that he did what was legally permissible, but the problem is he didn't do the master's will with the money that he had. What he did was he brings it back, and we find the connection here in the verse. Why doesn't he do the master's will? It has to do with his heart condition toward the master. 
What he says in the text ultimately is, listen, I didn't do anything with your money because I think you're a, a hard and cruel man. And so I was thinking to myself, I don't want to endure your cruelty. And so what did I do? I put your money in the ground so I could make sure I didn't lose the enemy, so I can give it all back to you so you wouldn't punish me. Now, that does not mean that the master is hard and cruel, but the master accepts his assumption and says, let's work with that. Let's work with your thoughts and your heart towards me, because that's what this is really about, about how you feel about me demonstrates how you behave. So as he said, let's, let's go with the logic of what you just said. If you really did believe that I was hard and cruel and I would punish you and you knew what my will was, then you should have been all the more motivated to actually go out and invest it because you just said I'm the kind of guy who likes to show up and get stuff when I haven't done any work. So you knowing that shows me that something's wrong because you didn't even operate based on what you felt and thought about me. It just tells me your heart is wrong. So that's why he gets put in the category of the wicked. And then we get eternal consequences. Here, Jesus pictures it as outer darkness. Here's Jesus's point. We had the first one. Here's the second one that he makes about being ready for his coming. Only those who spend their time using the resources they have received from God to do his will will be ready for Jesus when he arrives. Only those who spend their time using the resources God they have received from God to do his will will be ready to, to be ready when Jesus arrives and be ready to enter the kingdom of God. That brings us to the final thing and the final analogy that Jesus uses. Let's go directly to the text and then we'll unpack it. So Jesus starts off and what he says is, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, you did not do it to, <clears throat> as you did not, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus uses an analogy here. He has the imagery of their society. He, he's just drawing things from their culture. 
here is of a shepherd with his sheep at night and his goats, and he's going to separate his flock. I'm told that goats need to be closer together because to, they don't do, do well with the cold as well, and the, and the sheep can bear it so they can hang out a little bit more separate. So at night, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. Although they look similar, uh, he's going to separate them out, and he's going to take time to look at each one individually and say, you go here and you go there because you're a sheep and you're a goat. And he uses this analogy to be able to help understand what he's going to do with people on an individual basis. Now, if you notice in the text, it all hinges on the lives that they've lived, not the professions that they've made. So in Jesus' parable, he's already made a connection from us for us in the parables he's already been telling. Earlier that the parable I did not tell you in Matthew 24, 48, what the text actually says in the Greek is that he says in his heart. So he has a thought in his heart, and what he thinks inwardly is ultimately what causes him to act in an outward way. Notice in the same thing in the parable we just read, there was a certain thought of feeling a concern or relationship toward the master. There was an internal condition, and that then affected what he did in his life. So the connection that Jesus has already made is that the actions that we see in a person's life give us evidence of the kind of heart that they have toward him. In this text, that's what the whole thing hinges on, right? So everybody sees the glorious Lord sitting on the throne, and they're thinking to themselves, I would never treat you bad. I would never mistreat you. I would never not meet your need, great king. But Jesus says, you always had opportunity to do that when you were ministering to those who were associated with me, my disciples. When you ministered or didn't minister to them, you were doing it to me because... What was going on in your heart toward me affected how you treated those who came in my name. So your life is demonstrating what was going on in your heart. And so your life has revealed the type of heart that you have toward me and your relationship, and thus your judgment is based on that, and they're separated out. One to eternal life and one to eternal punishment, which has been pictured for, her, pictured for us here as out of darkness. What did they do? When the people who were associated with Jesus were in needs, notice what the text says. He talks about two different types of needs, physical needs and emotional needs. One, physical needs, food, clothing, drink, emotional needs, visiting when I'm in sick or I'm in prison. Idea of prison here is I've been sharing the gospel and I've been in prison for my faith and you're concerned about me, so you come to encourage me and to minister to me to stay in the faith. That's kind of the concept here. So it's showing love. That's ultimately what they're doing. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They demonstrate a life of love through their deeds, not just their words. That brings me to the third point that Jesus makes about being ready. Only those whose lives show they have a changed heart towards Jesus by showing love to his disciples will be ready for his arrival and enter the kingdom. Let me say that again. Only those whose lives show they have a changed heart towards Jesus by loving his disciples will be ready for his arrival and enter his kingdom. Now, this becomes all the more challenging when those disciples don't look, think, or act like you but they have faith in Jesus Christ. There then becomes the test. So let me sum back up what the message is for today. I'll begin with the words of Jesus again, and I'll read them to you. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You may guess, you may think, but you'll never know when he's going to arrive. 
And thus, the point is not about the timing, but about the preparation. So what do you do to get ready for Jesus? Well, one, you need to be like the wise teenage girls. That is, you know Jesus is coming and you don't know when he's going to show up, so you need to use the time you have to wisely prepare. How might you do that? That comes with the parable of the talents. Take the time and resources that God has entrusted with, to you during the time you have and use them to do his will. What does his will look like? Exactly what Jesus said. You love God by loving others. And one of the ways we love others, especially those who belong to Jesus, and we show our love for Jesus by meeting their needs, is how we demonstrate our faith, that our hearts have been changed, and we ultimately love Jesus because we love those who are associated with him. That's how we get ready for Jesus. So the question is, are you ready for Jesus to arrive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and thank you for these creative ways, and thank you for Pastor Mike helping me come up with illustrations to be able to relate this, to not only to our children, but hopefully to our adults as well. And we pray, Father, that it would be clear, uh, Lord, what it is that you expect. And I pray, Father, that each one of us will be wise and not foolish, that we would take the time to prepare ourselves spiritually for your arrival. Lord, we also ask that we would see the resources that you've given to us as what has been entrusted to us as stewardship, and one day we will have to give an account for what we've done with what you've given to us. And we pray, Father, that because our hearts have been changed, because we have faith in Jesus, we've repented of our sins and continue on a daily basis to repent from those things that are not consistent with you, that the Spirit will work in our hearts to produce in us, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, that which is pleasing to you, to will to do that which is good, because you have saved us for the purpose of being zealous for good works. And all our lives do is testify to the faith that we have or do not have, and that's why we see what we see in our lives. So we pray that, Lord, we will be like the sheep and not like the goats. And on that day, what will be demonstrated as works of the Spirit, not our own works, because we've been keeping in step with the Spirit, He would produce in our lives those works that give evidence of our faith in you. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.